This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Amanda Berman, the founder and executive director of Zionus. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and Cardozo Law School, Amanda Berman was a civil rights litigator known for her work against Kuwait Airlines for its discrimination against Israeli nationals and San Francisco State University for its constitutional and civil rights violations against Jewish and Israeli students and community members. After being a litigator, she founded and now leads Zionist, which is a new initiative empowering and activating Zionists on the progressive left to stand proudly in social justice spaces as both Zionists and Jews. Amanda, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here with you. So we are going to be discussing today, for those who want to open your Bibles, Numbers 27.1. So the book of Numbers 27.1, and this is the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. So uh, Amanda, do you want to just uh, summarize the story um, for those who may not have their Bibles right in front of them? Sure. So the story of the daughters of Zelophehad was shortly after the Exodus, about one or two years after the Exodus, and just before the Jewish people were entering the land of Israel. There were laws about uh, the distribution of land, of property ownership, and the laws said that the sons of the men would inherit the land. And Zelophehad, Zelophehad had five daughters, but no sons. He died in uh, the desert. We don't really know how he died. We know that he was not part of the rebellion, Korach's rebellion against Moses. So we know that um, he was, you know, a, an active participant in the Jewish life as we know it. Moses's tribes and and the Jewish people who were wandering through the desert, and he was a good Jew, but he didn't have any sons, and so there was no one who could pass on his name in his land ownership. But he had five daughters, so what were the names of his daughters? So his daughters were named Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza, and their names actually have very uh, profound significance. Their names are referring to different dances, so dancing in a ring, like the Jews dancing in uh, the Hora, swaying and shaking, hopping around. These are actually the names of his daughters. And then he has two more, Princess and Lovely. Well, those are incredible names for a father to give his daughters. Why do you think he named three of his daughters after different kinds of dancing and then named the two youngest, Lovely and Princess? Well, it sounds to me as a, a daughter of a man who had two daughters and, and no sons that he was Zalofahad, like my father, was very happy to have daughters, that he was, you know, totally in love with his daughters. And, and when they were born, he was hopping and dancing and he, you know, found them to be lovely and, and princess-like. And it doesn't seem like he was too devastated not to have had sons. Yeah, it really makes us kind of uh, like this guy. You know, we can see him just his, and he wouldn't have known whether he had a boy or girl before they're born, obviously in ancient times, but he has all these daughters and he's just dancing around the uh, proverbial room. and then. Names him after his joy and enthusiasm five times, goes five for five. And so his, so he dies. We don't know why he dies. All we know is the uh, five daughters, they go before Moses and Eleazar the Kohen and the leaders and the entire assembly. So they go before the entire leadership 
of ancient Israel. And they say, our father died in the wilderness. And Amanda, as you said, they distinguish his death from that as Korach's rebellion, saying, as you said, he's a good Jew. He was not involved in this terrible rebellion, in fact, revolution against the Jewish people. And they have a question or a complaint or a change they want. What is it? So they want to be able to inherit their father's land. They want to be able to continue his name and his tradition. You know, the Jewish people are very committed to this idea of generation to generation of passing on the Jewish story. And this is the first time that the Jews are actually settling in the land of Israel. So it's extraordinarily powerful. They want to be part of the Zionist story. There are women who believe that they should have the same rights as men as the Jews were settling in the land of Israel. I, I think it's a, you, you made a crucial point. They want to be part of the Zionist story because they want to inherit in the land. That's, of course, the land of Israel. And they say specifically, why should the name of our father be omitted from him among his family because he had no son. In other words, they want their father's name and, of course, their name to be remembered in the land of Israel because they're Zionists, they love the land, and they want to inherit the land, and they want to settle the land, and they want to have just as much of a part of the land as a brother of theirs, if they had one, which they didn't, would have had. Yeah, it's so, I mean, in terms of Jewish continuity, it's so powerful. They want to perpetuate the family's name, but they're also, they're feminists in my eyes. They're, they're doing something revolutionary for women in the society that they were living in. But they're not only speaking as disenfranchised women, they're speaking as their father's daughters. They're speaking as members of their family. So it's, there's like two, you know, really powerful reasons why they're bringing this complaint to Moses and they're doing it so effectively. I think that's a great point. So these are the first feminists, or among the first feminists, they make the first feminist argument. They say it is not right that only boys, when there are, that, that we as girls, as daughters, cannot inherit in the land when we have no sons. It is not right that only men and boys should be able to inherit in the land. So they bring that argument to Moses. Now let's analyze, with you being a former litigator, let's analyze the argument, because of course, whether one wins or loses an argument is often informed by how one frames the question and makes the case. Yeah, it's true. I think, I mean, I can, I look at it both as a former lit litigator and as a progressive activist. I think mm -hmm. that they really teach us how to contest the status quo effectively. They're practical progressives. They have a very modern and egalitarian view of a woman's role in their society, but they really know how to play it. Um, how to make a political argument that is effective. They don't, it's, they're not having a philosophical debate. This is something very practical that is happening in their world. There is a, a void in the law. And as they're about to enter the land of Israel, they're concerned that they're, they're not going to have a place in this new, you know, Jewish society, this new Jewish civilization that's about to be built. So if they didn't make this argument then, they would have missed the opportunity to make it. So they, you know, timing was everything. The way that they, you know, thought about handling the argument saying, you know, this isn't a situation where they were arguing because they had a brother and they thought that the rules were unfair. I mean, they were saying there is no law here. There is nothing to speak to what happens to our father's land. And they take the argument really to the terrain that Moses, Elzar, the Kohen, and all the leaders would have to appreciate. They said, we're Zionists, like, of course, they are. They said, we love the land. They said, our father was one of you. Yes, he died for his sins, but we all sinned. He was not in Korach's rebellion. So he was one of you. He was one of us. So we want to inherit the land. Our father deserves to be in the land. We're not trying to overthrow the society. What they're basically saying is, if we had a brother, he would get it, but we don't have a brother. And as you said, Amanda, there's a, a gap in the law. And they said, why can't we fill it? Mm -hmm. Very strategic. 
Very strategic. It's a great argument. And very logical. Yeah, exactly. Entirely logical. Um, almost to at least our ears, irrefutable. But, you know, what else is interesting is from the purview of analyzing ancient society is we have these five young women and the Torah tells us that they stand before, and I'll repeat this again because it's so incredible, Moses, Eleazar the Kohen, and the leaders and the entire assembly, they stand before the entire leadership of the country and it just tells us that like, well, it's not that big a deal. They just stood before them. <laughs> I'm sure it was a much bigger deal than it maybe reads as we look at it now. That's a good point. I'm sure you're right, but, but they did it. And, uh, you know, perhaps uh, their father, who loved having five daughters, just gave his daughters the the courage and the conviction and the knowledge that they could make an argument to anyone about anything, be right and win. Yeah, I, I really do like to think of Zulu Fahad as very similar to my dad, who, you know, never, never saw any reason why I couldn't do all the things that if he had had a son, that his son would have been able to do. So I feel like these women really just said, if we don't stand up for ourselves, no one's going to stand up for us. There's, you know, this is a new problem. We've never been settling in the land of Israel before. We've never lost our father. We've never been without a brother. You know, we're the only ones who can speak to this situation. So we have to do it. So we have to summon the courage and, you know, the intellect and and bring it in the, the most strategic way, the most effective way. And we, I think they also believed that even if they lived in a patriarchal society, even if, you know, the, the way that social and cultural norms existed, men were favored over women. I think that they believe that God wouldn't see it that way, that God would say that women are equal, that, you know, we're all created in the image of God and that women should be treated equally. Uh, yes. And so when they bring the case before Moses and the others, what does Moses do? So Moses says that he is going to bring this to God. Moses is the only one that has this direct relationship where he can talk to God about what they've requested. I think what's really interesting about the way they presented their argument to Moses was it wasn't open-ended. They didn't say, we don't have brothers. We're not really sure what to do here. We, we really want to be part of this. Can you advise us? They said, if justice is to be served, we have to be able to inherit. You know, we have to be able to pass on our father's tradition. That's right. That's a very good, that's a very interesting point. They bring a specific claim. They're not making a kind of generalized philosophical argument about the status of men and women in the society. They're bringing a specific claim upon which Moses has to rule. Yeah. Very interesting. And so Moses goes and asks the boss. He asks God. And God says they're right. God says they're right. They're right. God says the daughters of Zalopakad speak properly. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among the brothers of their fathers, and you shall cause the inheritance of their father to pass on to them. So God unambiguously like it's like the Supreme Court rules nine zero unambiguously rules in favor of the five daughters. And he goes further than that. He says, speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. So this, you know, goes into perpetuity. These women have stood up for women long into the future for their own daughters and their daughters. Very interesting. Yeah, I think I mean, this is what social transformation looks like. This is progress, like huge progress, a gigantic leap forward for women. Maybe the first. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the, yeah. And the first and, and, and a model. And so these five daughters make a specific claim. They want to inherit the land. They make their argument. They win. But it's God who generalizes it, right? God doesn't just rule narrowly and say, you can inherit. As you said, he basically changes the rules of the society in a feminist direction. 
Yeah, I guess I wonder, we don't really know this from the passage, but I wonder if that was their intention, if they intended only to get a ruling that related to them or whether they realized that this was going to be a social problem for other families and, you know, whether they were intending to essentially go to the Supreme Court or whether they just wanted to inherit themselves. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't say in the text. Um, one of the great things about the Bible silences is it gives us the opportunity to imagine. But certainly the effect is progressive change. And this just might be the greatest single leap forward in a moment that has ever occurred in progressive thought, because the laws of ancient Israel, as recorded in the Torah, which is the sacred book for the Jews and many Gentiles, has now legitimized the idea of women inheriting. And once that's legitimate, not only legitimized, but once that's the law of the land, as you said, it totally establishes that men and women are equals. Because if they can both inherit, then what can't they do similarly or the same? Well, I, I would push back a little bit and say, I don't think that this, I don't think this is a declaration of full equality. Not that God wouldn't have wanted it to be perceived as such. I, I don't know. I would never presume to speak for God, but these women can only inherit because they don't have a brother. That's and true. women, you know, even under God's declaration in Numbers 27, women can only inherit if they don't have brothers. And if there are no sisters, it goes to uncles, you know, it, it goes to men. There's no provision for wives or for sisters. So it's definitely not full equality in my mind, but it's a huge step forward. And when we think about progress, it's incremental. Things happen step by step. So it's a huge step. There's still so much more work to do. Very proud of these women. But I, you know, I don't know that that it's not the be all end all. It, it never no. is. There's always more to do. Right. But so it doesn't establish, as you said, full equality, but it establishes the logic of equality. Yes. Yes, I agree with that, of course. Yeah, and that's one thing that I think that the, the Bible does so well with, with so many things. And, and when we th think about progressive transformation, so yes, every policy didn't reflect equality, but that there was a logic for equality because there were no good arguments for treating men and women differently on matters of commercial law ever, right? If the daughters of Zalapakad can, can inherit, then why can't women do A, B, C, X, Y, Z? The answer is not going to be very good if it's right, enough. right. I mean, I'm assuming that inheritance, given the prominence of this passage, you know, in the timeline of the Exodus and, and the settlement of the land of Israel for the first time, I'm assuming that inheritance is a big deal in that society. I don't know enough about what other things, you know, oh, absolutely. transmit power, but this seems like something that's a really big deal. Oh, it's a huge deal because, um, and it's also a big deal that it, it that because we're going to settle the land and that's going to happen in the book of Joshua. But it, we're also going to settle the land in tribes. And it's interesting. So this progressive change actually created a problem, which is that tribal identity was passed patrilineally. So if now women can inherit, what happens to the tribal claim on the land? And that question does come up in Numbers 36, that exact question. Yeah, so I know that in that passage, they determined that a woman has to marry within the tribe. So it would, you know, deal, address any, any issue that would come up along those lines. And I know, I know Mark, you and I have talked about this. I was slightly concerned that that was limiting a woman's options, but I didn't know the numbers, how many numbers there were of just 
population in each tribe. And it sounds like they were well handled. They had a lot of options. Yeah, there were there were one doesn't know exactly, but the Bible seems to suggest there were about three million people at some point. So give or take in the desert. And uh, so 12 tribes, um, enough men and women of marriageable age for uh, anyone to marry within the tribe. But it, but it is interesting because that solution and it says specifically they can marry anybody in the tribe. So these women are given the freedom to marry whoever they want in the tribe. It's not, as you said, it's not that constraining. They got, there are 12 tribes. There are plenty of men to choose from. But it also really elegantly solves the problem is that now we can have inheritance going to the women and we can maintain tribal integrity through this new marriage law. It's a new law, this new marriage law, which really doesn't disadvantage or harm anybody. So they, they tied it up with a bow. They certainly did. Yeah, <laughs> they, they certainly did. Now, um, what models of um, progressive change do you think we can learn from this story? Well, there's a couple. First of all, when I think about today's Jewish community in 2020, I think of this as a lesson that Jewish women are just as much a part of the Jewish people as Jewish men. And I think that's so important when we talk about Jewish continuity in a time where the Jewish people are divided, you know, the diaspora, we have a diaspora all over the world. There are political divisions, there's assimilation. I mean, so many challenges that are pulling us away, frankly, from our Jewish roots. And there are so many Jewish women who really value all of the same, you know, Jewish commitments that they did back then. So I really see this as a very resonant message to the many Jews who feel less connected that there are so many Jewish women, I will say, like the women of Zionists who are holding on really tight to our Jewish values and our Zionism and instilling that in the next generation. And our people are just too small that only half of them should be able to participate in the Jewish story. Right. The full Jewish story. I've actually used that argument, too, about, you know, when I advocate for not this comes up a lot, but when it does about why women should be able to serve in minions, the best argument is God himself said that the women can inherit the land. So therefore, why can't they serve in minions or do lots of other things? Yeah, it seems seems not so strategic to say that women shouldn't be participating in every aspect of Jewish life when our numbers are so small and our mission is so big. Right. And I also really think it models progressive change in the same way that you did is that it it celebrates what is significantly incremental. So yes, we can all agree now, of course we all agree that it would have been better for women to be, for these girls, these women to be able to inherit whether or not they have brothers, okay? But that wasn't even a possibility in the society, yet they made this huge leap forward and in so doing established the logic that women should be able to inherit equally to men. And it's today when I hear um, significant incremental change being criticized, not just today, this has been through really the history of progressives. When you hear significant incremental change being uh, criticized, I think about, it's as though someone had said to the Wright brothers, well, the Kitty Hawk was a terrible airplane. (laughs) And it's like, well, you can imagine someone saying, well, why would you say that? It's like, well, it it can't do what a Boeing 747 can do, right? But nobody was flying before the Kitty Hawk. So it was a great airplane. Yeah, you got to start somewhere and, and improve from there. I think that's right. I I think this story to me is so powerful because I think of it as the first time that women were standing up for themselves in this way. And I think now when you see frustration in the women's movement, it's because we've had a lot more time and a lot more lessons to build on in terms of the advancement of women's issues and, and equality. And we're still not quite there. I mean, we're not even close to there, in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that we haven't taken a lot of big steps along the way. And it's a conversation that's been happening a lot in in the progressive community with regard to racial justice also. I mean, this week um, was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, when you think about 
the civil rights movement and, you know, the legacy of the Jewish community and the African-American community working together for, for civil rights and equality and justice. And we take two big steps forward and then we take a giant leap backward and we have to keep moving forward. And that means that we have to keep our heads up and remember the many big advancements like the ones that, you know, we, we got to see with the daughters of Zillow Fahad and think about how many more big steps we still have to take forward. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate the steps that, you know, the, the victories that we've already won. And they, they gave us the logic. And and it wasn't just them because, you know, our arguments and progressive change always happen in the context of the society with which it's made. And I just think one of the stunning parts of this story is that you have these five young women who, as we discussed, have the courage to make the case before and the Bible is so clear, all the powerful men in the society. But, you know, you can imagine, you know, as a litigator, you know, they get this brief before them. You know, we have uh, the five daughters of Zalofa God have a problem. And if it was a sexist or even patriarchal society, what would they have done? I think they would have said dismissed. Right. What man is is, is their attorney? What man is their uh, co-plaintiff? But they didn't. They heard they heard the case and they all heard the case. And they said, I. Uh, Good points. Let's go ask God. So the arguments of these five women were very well received by the entire leadership of the community of Israel. Yeah, it's really interesting. In the reading, we don't we don't hear anything about the reaction other than the fact that all of these men thought it was a good argument. We don't see them saying, I can't believe these women came here. You know, I can't believe they left their tribe and they came to, you know, the center of of the community at that time. And, and they spoke to us as if we were equals, there was no conversation of that. So I guess I wonder whether it was actually so groundbreaking at all, or whether it was just, they were the first women to do it. Oh, that's a great point. Maybe they weren't the first women to do it. Or maybe they were, and other women could have done it and didn't have the courage or the confidence that these women did. Right. But it doesn't. Yeah. So whether they yeah, they may or may not have been the first women to do it. All we know is they were the first women to do it in the Torah. But the Torah makes no claim to be comprehensive, to tell every story that happened in the desert. So maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But uh, they had the courage and they were welcome litigants before the bench. Yeah, it's really it's, I can envision it, you know, <laughs> like you can see this happen. It would make a good movie. Yeah, yeah. Or part of a movie. Yeah. It really would. These confident women. I, I'm picturing one of them dancing and swaying, one of them hopping around. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure that's not how they presented themselves, but they they really... It after feels, they won, though, maybe. They they what? Sorry? No, after they won, probably. After they won. Yeah. Right. Maybe they, they hopped around and, and one was crowned, the princess was crowned. Who knows? But it's, it is incredible that they, you know, they handled it in the way that they did and and that it was so well received and that nobody seemed shocked or offended by the fact that they felt they had the right to ask for this in the first place. Absolutely. So Amanda, thank you for such an interesting uh, conversation about this really remarkable biblical story. And um, let's just turn from one book, the Torah, the book of numbers to a very different book, which is um, Andre Malraux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And in the beginning of the book, the first page, he tells the story of uh, running into somebody with whom he served in the war. And he says, uh, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, um, in all your years of hearing confessions, what have you learned about mankind? And the man said two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Amanda, you have founded um, a remarkable um, organization, which is um, really giving uh, progressive Zionists the 
comfort to maintain both of their identities and both of their politics. In the course of founding and leading this organization, in the course of this struggle that you're leading, what are a couple of things that you've learned about mankind? I love this question. And now I have to read that book. So there are two things. And and one of them, I think, is a direct lesson from Zalofahad's daughters, which is that they work together. They, it's not one at a time. They agree on the basic tenet of their requests. They move together collectively as a united group. They request justice and justice is granted. And one of the things that I noticed as a progressive activist myself, and, and one of the things that Zionists really exists to to talk about in the progressive space is that when we are divided, we are not accomplishing our shared goals. It's impossible. And anti-Semitism that exists within the progressive movement and any other form of bigotry that exists in the progressive movement is dividing the movements and harming our ability to advance our shared goals. So the lesson of this for me is we really need to push out the division. We really need to push out all the forms of bigotry that exist there because we have big work to do. And I think when we are doing it collectively and, and with courage, with confidence, with all of our authentic selves, as we try to do as INS, we can succeed. And another really important lesson, I would say just personally in founding Zionists, is that when you know that something has to exist, don't rely on anyone else to do it. You really have to stand up and do it yourself. And that's actually a little bit frustrating for me because I feel like it was so obvious that we had a huge void in our institutional landscape in the Jewish Absolutely. community. And for maybe a year and a half, how did it happen? Okay, yeah, how did it happen? So, so you, you notice this void. You think it's such an obvious void; no one's filling it. Were you? Did you look around to see if anybody was? Yeah, and and I I worked very closely with the institutional leadership, you know, through the conference of presidents of major American Jewish organizations, which, which brings together the leadership of you know our community's major organizations. And I really loved working with and learning from all of these leaders and. I guess it was, I mean, I know because of that relationship, because I was privileged enough to sit in the room with all of these leaders and to know what all of their organizations were doing, there was not a leader who was doing this. There right. were, you know, there were progressive voices, there were activist voices, but there was not a progressive voice that was bringing Zionism in a totally organic and powerful way into progressive spaces and tying it to our progressive identities. And we can't fight anti-Zionism by showing up as Jews, we have to expose anti-Zionism by showing up as Zionists. Exactly. So at, at what moment did you say, all right, there's this gap. I know there's a gap and, uh, and I'm gonna have to drop everything I'm doing and fill that gap. So it happened. I mean, it happened totally by accident, but it happened because I was sort of witnessing myself really pulling out of the activist spaces that I had always been a part of. Um, which was, it was totally unintentional and not even totally conscious. I, I woke up one day and was sort of like, why am I not involved in the women's movement anymore? Why am I not involved in racial justice activism? These are, you know, marriage equality and climate change and gun control. These are issues that I really care about. And as I sort of reflected on my own journey deeper into the Jewish community and the sort of Zionist community, I found myself, you know, less involved in the domestic issues that I cared about. And I realized that it was because of this new manifestation of anti-Semitism that existed there. And so ultimately, well, first of all, when I started talking about it with friends, like that I didn't go to the original Women's March because I just couldn't countenance the anti-Semitism of the founders of the Women's March, right. my friends who are just like me, hold all my values, committed Zionists, you know, they thought I was nuts. They thought I was a conspiracy theorist and, and nobody could understand, you know, knowing me as well as they did, why I would ever stay home from a movement like the Women's March, which is so did, powerful. Were they saying that there was not anti-Semitism or were they yeah. saying that, that you should, you, you shouldn't react to the anti-Semitism as you did? 
No, the former. I mean, people were not aware. I think people are more aware now. I have to say, I think Zionists has played a huge role in actually exposing the problem, which we couldn't fight until people were actually aware that the problem existed. The original Women's March in January 2017, people thought I was nuts when I said there was anti-Semitism there. I mean, really, my my Ivy League educated, brilliant Zionist friends who go to Shabbat services every Saturday thought I was crazy. They thought you were crazy because... It couldn't be because it wasn't or they knew you might have been right, but but they wanted to maintain the belief that you weren't. I think it might have been all of the above, but I will say I really don't think that people were aware of what was happening in progressive spaces. I mean, I still have, you know, brilliant Jewish friends who if I asked them if they were aware of what BDS is, they would have no idea. So and there are people I mean. There are committed Zionists who don't call themselves Zionists because they don't actually know what Zionism means. And if you say to them, do you believe Israel should exist? Do you believe it should be a Jewish state? Do you believe it should be safe and secure? They say, of course. And you say you're a Zionist. And they say, no, no, Zionism is very complicated. So, you know, I think we have a lot of of educating to do in the community. But I don't think that the way that we have been educating up until now has been so effective. I think it needs to be simpler and I think it needs to be more powerful and more more relevant to what is connecting Jews to their Jewish identities today. And and in a lot of Jewish spaces and a lot of Jewish communities, that commitment is the tikkun olam commitment, the, the progressive social justice commitment. And for me, that was really a huge part of my Jewish identity also. So making people aware that you can be both a social justice activist, that you can care about social and racial and economic and gender justice in America, and you can be a proud Zionist. And actually, it makes perfect sense. Those two commitments are you know, intertwined for most of us, that is a groundbreaking thing for some people, which is crazy for us, right? Because we're very aware of that. But people feel they really need to have courage to hold, you know, both of those identities at the same time. So we're trying to give them a place where they can do that. Well, Amanda, thank you for your work. God bless your work. Thank you for it. And thank you for such an interesting conversation uh, this evening on The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thank you so much for including me. I'm so grateful and it's fascinating to really to study this this piece. Incredible text. Yes, thank you. you are the-